better? Okay. Um, it's a very strange business to try to teach people to forgive. And it's really hard. And, and when, when she asked me what I wanted to do, I, I realized that if I don't give some background about what forgiveness is and isn't and some, some understanding of not the project that we do, but the, the reason that I teach it, you wouldn't have gotten value from coming to hear me. And it's not like I need to be heard. I mean, I can't tell you how many talks that I've given, but as long as I've come here, you might as well get something out of it. Um, and that's the truth. I mean, I've got, have I, I've already done two webinars today and, you know, it's like I talk all over the place. Um, forgiveness is an innate response that we have to suffering. It's not the only response that we have to suffering, but it's a hardwired um, biological imperative response because we humans have to have some capacity to wipe the slate clean. Otherwise, as Dedman Tutu says, without forgiveness, there is no future. And if we can't wipe the slate clean in some fashion, we're always arguing about the past. Since no life is actually in the past, that's what makes those arguments so destructive and endless because they don't actually exist in reality. We're all, we simply live now. And we all have different memories of what happened. We all have different prejudices. We all have different needs. We all have different everything. So none of us inhabits the same world and none of us had the same past. And unfortunately, we fight over our perceptions of the past. And there's no proving anything. There's no right. I mean, there may be right from perspective, but there's only energy traces and those arguments bog the whole human race down let alone having mom and dad hate each other or you and your best friend fighting over what happened in the past so forgiveness is the hardwired capacity that human beings have to let that argument go and try if they can to be in their current life without this prejudice dragging it through it. So I have actually met Desmond Tutu. I mean, I'm, I've, I've run a Stanford University project for almost 30 years. So just, just because I do it out of Stanford, I mean, look at me. I'm like, I'm, re I'm, I'm really an ex-hippie. I show up like, you know, like this is dressed for me. I put on a jacket. But um, for 30 years, because I've been doing it out of Stanford, like people pay attention. Like I still sound like, you know, an old New York hippie. But 
because I work at Stanford, I have these unbelievable opportunities. So I've met Desmond Tutu and he's a remarkable human being or was. And he, his forgiveness comes through Jesus. That's not where mine comes from, but his comes through Jesus. You, when you meet him or if, you know, back in the day, I mean, I met him 20 years ago, maybe. Um, he's energy bounces off of him of, of happiness. He has this big um, cross hanging from his neck. He's a profoundly religious man. He was. So that's where his forgiveness comes from. It comes from some connection to his God in a way that I don't understand. But he was able to take that profound connection and help heal a country for a while. It's not so healed anymore. But he and Nelson Mandela did amazing things. And I never got a chance to meet Nelson Mandela, but I've known people who have met Nelson Mandela. And I've known people who have done incredible work with forgiveness in South Africa. One of them being the parents of Amy Beale, who was the Stanford student murdered in South Africa while on a Fulbright scholarship. And they pulled, they killed her. She was in her car. She was a white 24-year-old woman who they, they made a mistake. You know, they thought she was an apartheid person and she was there from the Fulbright trying to end apartheid. So she was killed unjustly. Her parents found out that she was killed and they went to South Africa to start a foundation to help the country heal. And I, I know I just visited her mother you know, a few weeks ago. So what drove her mother was her suffering, her raw suffering that she had to find something to make it of value. So she went to South Africa with her husband and their children and they met the people who killed their daughter and they employed those people and they set up a foundation and they did it because they had they didn't know what else to do with their pain. For me, I mean, I'm I do it out of science. I do it out of some hippie conviction that you can make the world a better place. I do. I believe that. Um, but I don't do it for Jesus, and I don't do it strictly out of pain. I do it because I've done research that shows that people who forgive are happier. I do it because people who forgive have lower blood pressure. You know, I do it because people who forgive are less angry. So, so they live longer. And I do it because, and, and I will tell you this, um, it's my tiny, tiny little contribution to world peace. That's why I do it. Because I know I have worked with numerous people who've had their family members murdered, who've had their children murdered, who've had, you know, their parents murdered. I, 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 I went in and did a group of people about twice this size after the attacks on 9-11, everybody there had somebody killed and 
I went in there and said, you know, somewhere down the road, if you don't forgive this, you're going to get eaten up alive. It turned out to be true. We did projects with North, Northern Ireland, with Sierra Leone. I'm now doing work in Colombia. Because it's my little tiny contribution, maybe, maybe, to make the world a little kinder. Because forgiveness is, there's two definitions that I love. One of them is giving up all hope for a better past, which is a definition written by a woman in Marin whose child was murdered. And she came to that forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past, that, that this was my life and I have to make peace with it. The other one is the one we came up with, Forgiveness is making peace with the word no. No, you can't get what you know. It's not going to turn out the way you hope. No, the person's not going to love you. No, your kid's not going to survive. No. And we teach it and thought of it as a form of resilience. So what do you do when the world says absolutely no to what you want or what you think is right? Do you fight forever? Do you argue? Or at some point, do you make peace? I believe in my bones that at some point we need to make peace. That's, that's, that's my conviction that's been driving me. I mean, you know, I failed a huge number of times in teaching us, and I've succeeded sometimes. But I do know the difference when I meet somebody who is um, still angry or still full of self-pity because of what happened, they're not happy. And then they project that anger outward and everybody gets a piece of it. And so when you are touched by anger in any way, your nervous system reacts with fear. That's what we, anytime anger is sent our way, we respond with fear. Fear causes us either to get angry back or to run away. So the whole, at least the whole world's paying this stuff forward. I wasn't treated well, so I'm not going to treat well. They didn't treat my people well, so I'm not going to treat their people well. I sat in a room once, which... I barely have words to describe. I sat in a room, not like this, because it was on Stanford's campus. It would have been nice if it was like this, nice chairs, couches. But we didn't do that. We took um, a place called Encina Hall, and we took the fifth floor. And we brought about 20 people from Northern Ireland who were there, who had had family members murdered. So like, you know, this group amount of people. And we brought them together, Catholics and Protestants, and um, we said, we're going to try to help you forgive what happened. And the, the, the horrifying thing, I mean, truly horrifying, is to be in a room with 20 people who have had their family members murdered and try to even hold that, like the horror and the cruelty. 
And yet both sides felt 100% justified, 100%. And I'm watching and thinking, like all of you somehow have some relationship to Jesus. I mean, don't you get this ain't Jesus's thing? This is your thing? Like, I don't care what you call yourself, Catholic, Protestant. It's like, Jesus was about peace. So uh, this is, I mean, my hippie days. And, and seriously, I, I owned a vegetarian restaurant in Santa Cruz way back in the day. I mean, I'm not making this up. I was a hippie with hair down to here. And anytime the Grateful Dead came into play, you know, like the Fillmore West, we got all these people in our restaurant in Santa Cruz. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not making that up. But from that time, one of the spiritual teachers whose name was Ramdas, he, I heard him. I mean, I knew him a tiny bit because of, you know, Stanford and stuff. Um, but I remember him saying about the 60s, that I've never seen so many angry people marching for peace. And that to me is the essence of forgiveness. If you're angry, you're for anger. If you're for peace, you have to be peaceful. That's that, the medium is the message. When you get Catholics and Protestants arguing with each other, they're not fighting for their religion. Their religion teaches them to turn the other cheek. So they're fighting for something else. And again, the work that we do is to try to remind people, literally try to remind people, that you do not have to respond with unkindness just because unkindness came your way in whatever way you define that. You do not have to respond with unkindness that you have choices. And you wanna practice those choices so you hold on to them. So from our point of view or my point of view or teaching point of view, Sometimes it's too much to forgive somebody who murders your sister or beats the shit out of somebody you love or abuse somebody. But everybody can forgive the guy who cuts them off on the freeway. Or if you get bad service in a restaurant or if somebody makes a mistake, you can practice strengthening that muscle. But if we practice being angry, then that's what we get better at. When we practice being kind, that's what we get better at. And the whole challenge, literally the whole challenge for me is not to tell people that they have to forgive or be compassionate. It's I want them to put it on their menu. So they start to look for it and practice it and go home with it. So if their partner screws up, like they don't have to forgive the worst things in the world, but they can forgive their partner. So that we have these kindness parts of ourselves that we develop 
and both as a person and as a community, we develop kind responses to compete with the hostile responses because those are hardwired in too. The problem is our nervous systems were set up so that harshness and negativity are the defaults and kindness is much harder to come by. We have a nervous system wired for threat and wired for danger and wired to remember unkindness. It's a very primitive survival-based system. We have to practice the other pieces so that they become competitors. Let me stop for a minute, and if you'd all let me lead you in a guided meditation practice, and I'll stop in a few minutes, but let me just give you a moment's practice in, I, also, I just get tired of hearing myself talk. I mean, you have no idea what 25 years of that is like. <laughs> it becomes like one of those, um, you know, Groundhog Day movies where it's just like the same life scene all over the place. Here's Fred talking about forgiveness again. Oh, God. But if I'm going to ask you, please, all to join me in a meditation, which means I don't care. How, you don't have to make a formal posture. You just need to please close your eyes. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm being serious. Close your eyes and allow your body to relax. and allow yourself to get comfortable. And you wanna, you wanna relax your shoulders and you wanna relax your belly so that you can breathe deeply And you want to soften your breathing. And when you inhale, you want your abdomen to expand so your brain knows that you're safe. And when you exhale, you want your abdomen to contract to push the air out so it's free to return. So your belly's soft, your shoulders are soft. And you want to make sure that when you inhale, your belly gets bigger. And when you exhale, your belly contracts. And then bring an image to your mind of someone you love. Bring a clear, crisp image of someone you absolutely adore. 
And it's all you want to do is allow that image to help you feel that love. So you're, you're picturing someone you adore. And then you're allowing yourself to feel it, the affection. And then just allow that feeling into your own heart. And then just let that go. Let the image go, let the feeling go. Now very gently take a breath and allow your eyes to open. So what's entirely missing from the conversations on forgiveness is this part of you already knows how to do it. It's in you. It's all in you. Anger is in you. Rage is in you. Despair is in you. Hopelessness is in you. Forgiveness is in you. Kindness is in you. Generosity is in you. It's all there. It's what you teach yourself to pay attention to. So when you're loving towards anything, that part of you is speaking to you and it will speak to you with the voice of forgiveness. Like, relax. Nobody should suffer. Nobody else should suffer. But there's many other parts of you that want people to suffer because you've suffered. But they're different parts of you. They don't exist outside. They're not in the offender. They're in you. So we need to practice the different channels in us so that we have the freedom to make the best decision, which is why groups with grievances are so difficult because they have such a narrow band of information coming in. But if you have a wide range of information, then there are some moments where you recognize, no, I don't wanna go to that angry place. I wanna go to the place that naturally lets it pass through me. I wanna go to the place where I feel shared suffering, not just my suffering, which is compassion but it's in us, it, it's, it's inherent in all of us. A lot of it is to do with what we practice and how we were taught as children, but the forgiveness is not in the offense and it's not in the past, it's in us now. And it's always our choice. I mean, it, it, you know, 
Sometimes it's absolutely right to be furious, and it's the most intelligent response to offense. And sometimes it's absolutely right to be unbearably kind. But you have to practice accessing that part of you. And the easiest way, and then I'm going to shut up at about two minutes, the easiest way to access the part of you that's kinder is to be thankful. Because then you start seeing things clearly. Only when you're thankful do you actually have an accurate perception of the world. They've done MRI studies that show until we touch compassion, we misjudge just about every person that we meet, including ourselves for the worst, because we're so threatened. But the minute we can touch compassion, we start seeing them without all our prejudices. We see them as people. So the, the easiest is to have a little bit more gratitude so that helps you see things more nuanced. Some people are kind, some people aren't. Somebody's kind today, but they're not so kind tomorrow. Some people treat me worse than I treat them. Some people treat me better. It, it gives more nuance. Let me just finish with a, a simple practice. Turn to somebody next to you. And just all I want you to do is um, describe one person in your life that you're grateful for. Just don't make it you because that gets a little weird. <laughs> but one person in your life that you're grateful for and why. And no complaining. Just, yeah, my mom or my dad or my partner or my friend. This is how you develop the muscle that leads to forgiveness. You start to see things more clearly. Anyway, let me shut up. Take a minute to find somebody next to you. Talk about one person that you're grateful for in your life. And I thank you.
Uh, okay, everyone. Um, what I have to say, it's actually nice to be in front of real humans. <laughs> no, I, so much is done virtually. You don't, there's not the connection. It's just like you can feel people's energy and stuff. And anyway, I'm going to stop. I think she wants to ask me some question, <laughs> but I'm a college teacher. You just you can't shut us up. Um, so what, and could somebody bring me that chair? Because if I tried to get into this chair, I'd never get back up. I'm just, uh, there's no way with my leg. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. I have an arthritic hip, so that's why. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I do. I don't no, no, I believe you on your hip. <laughs> What's that? I believe you about your hip. I, you, you just have a lightness that um, makes me chuckle. Go ahead. What's your question? I have so many. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, you answered several. That's what I figured. Yeah, <laughs> like all those are those cards are different. <laughs> um, one of the things, and I, I think um, this might be on the mind of many people in the room, towards the end of your presentation, you talked about how if we are in groups that bring us together because of our anger, it's hard to get out of that because it's such a narrow band. And so it's important to be in diverse groups where we can experience compassion. Um, and obviously, we look at the political landscape, we look at social media, we look at, you know, well, I forget the name of the book, but it, you know, it talks about back in the day, we had bowling leagues, and now we don't have that, but we have angry Facebook groups. So the question is, has, how does the work of forgiveness change and adapt in this age where the siloed, you know, uh, that that is both a great question and almost impossible to answer. Um, no, let let me tell you one of the most poignant. I mean, I I did this work with Northern Ireland a long time ago, um, and I was really new with this, so I didn't know what the heck to expect. But these people came to us. And they were Catholic and Protestant. And I know they have hundreds of years of issues. But each side said they wanted peace. But each side viewed peace as somehow eliminating the other side. Like they used that word peace to mean like the Catholics meant it, that the Protestants would somehow be defeated or go away. That that their word peace was not peaceful. It was very aggressive. So you had both sides trapped in, we want peace, but it means the other side has to be defeated. So that's a tough place to find peace when both people are in that. So it, it limits their freedom. I'm just sharing how 
painful and weird that was. The second one was even more poignant. Um, the second time that we invited some of these people back, the first time was a group of women whose sons had been murdered in the violence. The second time was any family member who had been killed. And one of the things that the people said to us was when they went back to Northern Ireland, if they talked about forgiveness within their group, they were accused of being a traitor. And, and the most fascinating thing, and this is where it gets so awful, is the, the leader who knew about Northern Ireland. I didn't know much about Northern Ireland. I knew how to forgive. Thankfully, I was with somebody who knew something about the actual conflict. But he, he, he drew a picture on the board uh, and he put the word murder in it. Then he put an arrow this way and an arrow that way. And one arrow was to the family and the other arrow was to the community. And both try to own the murder. That happens now all the time. Bad things happen and the community tries to own the bad thing to use in their like issues. But the family is left to suffer because if the family says enough, let's just let this go and stop, then the community resists the family. And boy, was that one, it makes it almost impossible for healing to occur. But how, what a terrible position that puts the family. So I don't have great answers for you, but the one thing I can say is we don't go into a situation unless there's at least the beginning of a political process. There has to be some structure in place where forgiveness can fit. So we've been asked how many times to go to deal with Israel-Palestine. Can't do it. I mean, we can't do it. It's too raw. And there's no scheme or a structure built. In Northern Ireland, they had started peace talks. In Colombia, we've come in after the peace talks. In Sierra Leone, they had solved the civil war, but the, the casualties were still everywhere. This is one of the really difficult questions in peace studies, in any kind of international relations, is what's the relationship between the people who are actually victimized and the people who use that victimization for political ends? I don't have a great answer for you, but um, I hope that non-answer was... Is it, is it an area that you all are studying and doing more research on? Do you know why it's not? Is because I have a big enough ego that I want to succeed. Um, you know yourself. This is important. Uh, well, also, I see how grouchy I get in situations when nobody's bending and it's just negative after negative after negative, that ain't, that ain't a healthy place for me. So, so I'm actually going to go ahead and only question. No, no, I have left. more, but I want to give our audience a chance and I have backups just in case we have some, and you may have to translate the questions. My hearing I'm old. So my hearing ain't what it was. So 
follow questions to her and she'll tell them to me. Which is great because the guys on Zoom like when we do that okay. too. I'm just perfect. Yeah. Um, any questions <laughs> in the back? So I'm going to try and distill that to how can we really, with the media being an unreliable narrator, how can we get to the heart of the matter or peace? For example, with what's happening in Eastern Europe and earlier, he mentioned an example of the Israeli-Palestine conflict. I I read, I've been reading a bit about how... um, the financial incentives for media have changed enough so that their interest is less in fact-finding. This is in all parts of the political persuasion, not one part more than another, but that their financial model is stoking the feelings of the people who already agree with what they're saying, rather than trying to teach those people to find more truthful responses. So that is a very difficult environment for people to remain any kind of center and any kind of like semi-objective point of view. Um, I do believe, though, that this is where, to me, the concept of a diversity is so critical that we actually look for a variety of sources of information. And, and knowing that most of those sources are going to give you biased information, but there will be, um, if not areas of agreement, at least you'll pick up the areas that are ridiculous because you'll see facts from other points of view that make what they're saying ridiculous. So that's one, is to look for diverse sources of information. Two, is we have some capacity. And this is the the essence of both the spiritual practice of meditation and the secular practice of meditation. We can reduce some of the biases in our own mind by quieting it down. We just can. And one of the first, one of the things that functional MRIs have shown 
is one of the first results of meditation practice is that we quiet down the part of ourselves that finds us to be different from everybody else. Like one of our threat-seeking mechanisms that we have is to point out to ourselves how we're not alike and we need to be careful with everybody who doesn't look or behave or sound or end up at graduate school where we ended up. We are constantly searching for differences to try to find the one place where we may be safe, except that searching makes us almost never feel safe. One of the first impacts of meditation is that scanning dims a little bit and that you don't spend as much energy trying to discern how you're different from everybody else. So you're not looking at a crowd and saying, who's the same age as I am? Who comes from the same place that I do? Who believes what I do? You come at that with more of a commonality when that part of your brain down. And when you're perceiving people as having more in common with you, you're more likely to be able to have a dialogue. So that would be, I think that's your question, but I got it from her. So, <laughs> so actually I, a, a quick follow-up to that, sure. because, and you also did touch on this in your presentation. Um, the f- foundational thesis, as I understood, is that forgiveness is something that begins within and extends out. Yes. And your response to the question just now was really a directive of things we can do to avoid the very situation he described. Mm-hmm. So what what are the options available if we are wanting or hoping for those who disagree with us to come into this practice so like if if yeah i mean i'm going to say good luck to those <laughs> if you want people who disagree with you um if you just think of an argument that you have with somebody you like like just think your partner or your parents if you yell at them and tell them they're an asshole it's very low probability that they're going to change their mind and agree with you. So it doesn't work in the small level. It fails miserably at the large level. So demonizing people, telling them they're stupid, that they're absolutely wrong, rarely works to convince anybody that we're right. It, it has a small impact. But if you just think of, you know, your partner comes home and they're late, and you scream at them that they never care about you, that they're always late, you're less likely to get a sincere apology from that than I was worried about you. So we don't recognize that what works on the micro also might work on the macro. That there's we, we don't have that in our brains as much. Second is... Um, we have to remind ourselves sometimes that what we have are opinions, not revealed truth. And that makes us easier to talk to. Like we have opinions, they have opinions. We can hold our opinions ferociously, but they're still just opinions. We're not like Moses coming down with the 10 tablets, you know, we just, 
we got opinions and, and they may be great opinions, but a little humility about those opinions goes a long way to fostering people to help. And then there are very, there are, I don't know how effective they are, but there are communication trainings that can teach you how to be a better listener and how to be a better talker. So you have more likelihood that people might see it your way. I mean, there's no great answer to that either, <laughs> but there are things that make it worse. I'm gonna say that one of the great practices in these kind of things is we know inherently what makes things worse. It's like, if you're unhappy, but you wanna be even more unhappy, like bitch for an hour out loud and you'll go from unhappy to desperately miserable. <laughs> so there's a strategy that probably doesn't work that well. We have a lot of failed strategies that people still do. The, in the, in the counseling work that I do. So I, I have a small private practice with mostly forgiveness issues, but I'm not a therapist who wants to spend four years with a client. Like I'm like five sessions and, you know, if I can't help you, then find somebody else. No, it's true. But I will always ask people at some level, the Dr. Phil line, how's that working for you? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Like, how's it working for us? If we're self-righteous and nobody changes, then how's that working for us? I hope like that we can always, no always, sometimes go inside and adjust our course to see if it make it more effective. Excellent. Any other did you have your okay? Any other questions? Just from about seven too. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have another question from the audience to close to us out? So the question is around um, during the meditation, you instructed us to uh, make sure our abdomens yeah. expanded because so our minds would know we feel safe. <laughs> yeah. What is the, the science behind that? What's, how is that different from um, what we usually do? Two, two ways. Our nervous system is checking our rate and depth of breathing for how safe we feel. So if we're breathing shallowly or hurriedly, then part of our nervous system gets information that we don't feel safe. So won't allow us to relax and won't allow certain more positive loving thoughts to come into our mind because we're not safe. So what we, what we wanna do is breathe in a way that shows we're safe and no animal in nature will allow an abdomen vulnerable until it's safe, no animal. So we're practicing animal behavior of safety. That's one. The second is when you inhale and make sure you also really exhale, the next inhalation is a better one. So the exhalation that pushes down on the belly pushes out a little more air 
And therefore, the next breath that comes in will oxygenate your brain a little better. How's that? Good. All right. All right, everyone. Dr. Fred Luskin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, it was heavy, but... Um, <laughs> really? I mean, so, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It was a I legitimate mean, question. I think, you know, obviously there's so much power in what you are studying and what it can do for each of us individually. It is true. And I think the hopefulness for me is focusing on that individual power no question. and what I have control over. That's exactly right. I think the, ah, you got it. Thank you. <laughs> I think the, uh, part comes from what's happening in our culture. Well, and also each one of us has a strong desire to punish. When things don't go the way we want, we have a strong desire to punish. And that is a big challenge not to let that overtake our minds. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. So, well, everyone, thank you all so much for joining us this evening. Um, this is the first time we've had all this trio of chairs. So, well, I, 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 it might take me a week to get up. <laughs> so, we are just really grateful to Dr. Fred and all of you for coming out uh, tonight for this talk. I hope you. Um, gain some knowledge, maybe something for you to explore or a bit more of. Um, we always send a follow-up email from our event. So I'll take care of that tonight and I'll include the link to your nine steps of forgiveness. That was one of um, the questions in my multitude of questions. Um, but we are able to have these great conversations where we satisfy our curiosities. And this honestly for me was right. a natural curiosity. Um, as well as our work around political and civic engagement, because we have great friends. Um, they're sponsors, and they help Manny's be possible, uh, pure and simple. And so if this event uh, spoke to you, if you enjoy our programming, if you want to be a part of something amazing, as we were telling Fred earlier, we're trying so hard to be that sliver of light on the corner, then I encourage you to consider becoming a sponsor. I'm happy to talk with anyone if you have any questions around